and welcome to the Positively Michael podcast. This is your host, Glittery Socks, and I'm joined again by not one, not two, but three phenomenal co-host of this illustrious event. Oh, God. <laughs> Sparkle Socks. Sparkle Socks, are you there? Oh, I was on mute, my bad. <laughs> Ivy. beginning to the show and I feel like this is going to be a disaster, but we're going to just keep going. We're we're just going to keep going because we've been trying to get started for 45 minutes. And so bear with us because it's going to be that kind of show. We've got lots of news to get through. We've got the next installment of pause Mike's pages where we have a great discussion coming about the thriller chapter of uh, man in the music by Joe Vogel. We've got sparkle socks here to stake her claim in the next seven inches in selection and also to hear uh, listener feedback about Alex Isley. We've got our weekly member awards for our Twitter follower of the week, our post of the week and our member of the week. And we've also got lots of other things we're going to cover in the show. So with that being said, we're going to get to news after the break. Looking for a fun-filled online community where it's all Michael all the time? Then come join our family at PositivelyMichael.com. We keep our forum fresh, intelligent, and open-minded to learn about who Michael truly was and what he contributed to the world. Join in the thousands of discussion topics on our forum, ranging from Michael's music to his personal life, scan the collection of rare pictures and interviews, discuss a book or two on Michael's life and legacy, or just shoot the breeze with other members. Whether you appreciate general pop culture or are just a die hard Michael Jackson fan. Everyone has a place at PositivelyMichael.com. Make sure to stop by today to see what you've been missing. All right, so I'm going to pass it over to Ivy and Lars to handle the news. Okay, the first piece of news on the docket today is an update on the T.J. Jackson suit. So, Katherine Jackson has filed court papers asking for her grandson to be paid $9,000 a month for his role in looking after Michael's children. She asked the court to sign off on her request, and um, the request would then go to the Jackson estate and basically um, force them to give them to pay the money. According to the documents, Katherine claims TJ initially rejected the figure saying it was too much. She uh, also said that TJ, um, who was actually married and has three kids of his own, eventually agreed to the amount as it was roughly the same salary earned by the children's full-time nanny. Uh, Catherine said this salary is entirely justified because TJ spends an, hour of th- an average of over 300 hours per month caring for the children. And as part as part of the guardianship, he takes the kids to appointments, takes them to their practices, be it karate or guitar, and he ta- also takes them on like casual social outings. She also claims that he helps with homework and attends school functions, and a judge has yet to rule on the case. So I was shocked to see that the the nanny gets paid $9,000 a month. That's a pretty high salary for a nanny. Well, but I think that nanny 
is with, is that Blankets Nanny? I assume it's the woman that's always been yeah, with Yeah, so, so that is definitely like a 24-7 job that is far exceeding the time of a normal nanny. So maybe that's why it's so high. Mm, it's almost maybe. like an au pair as opposed to a nanny. Like, I, I don't, I wonder if she lives at the house or if she just comes every day. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So 300 hours per month, if you divide that by 30 days, that's like 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a lot of time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know there's been some division in the fan community about TJ um, requesting money, etc. And, you know, the fact that Catherine is saying that he actually asked for it to be reduced seems to be pretty consistent with how he's conducted himself thus far. I personally have never had a problem with him getting compensated, especially if Kim being in his 30s and now being responsible for six children has prevented him from earning money uh, to the degree that he would have before. I could imagine doubling that load could be pretty intense. Yeah, and I think this might go on record as the first time any Jackson family member has said, that's too much money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he definitely seems like he is there first and foremost for the kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that that... Mm -hmm. If if that is what he's there for, then I am I, I say give that man whatever he needs to continue to do that. I agree. Totally. What do you think, Sparkle Socks? I mean, I agree. <laughs> like that's the first time anyone said that's too much money. But yeah, that's yeah. If he's been doing the job, then. Hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And it definitely sounds like an average of three hundred hours a month. Like, that, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't want to say it's shocking, because I'm not surprised that TJ would be doing that, but I definitely didn't expect that that was the entire situation. I'm going to go on and say that that's more parenting hours than a lot of regular people spend with their kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I mean, seriously, a lot of people are not having 10 hours a day contact time with children when they're not... Oh, yeah. I mean, I figured he was there every day, but 10 hours every day. Yeah, that's some serious stuff right there. He's not playing around. I also wonder, like, how that works, kind of, because they're at school for, what, six hours a day? Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing weekends, he's there the full day, or with them the full day. Mm Mm-hmm. And then probably weekdays, he probably sees them for more, like, five hours a day, something like that. I don't know. And then it just balances out. Yeah, maybe so. Either way, it's it's significant. So, Mm -hmm. all right. Well, what's the next news story? The next news story, um, it involves a lawsuit involving Michael's ex-manager. So, to kind of understand the story, you kind of have to understand the background a bit. So, in 2011, Michael Jackson's former manager from, like, 30 years ago, Freddie DeMann, um, who was manager around off-the-wall time, claimed that the Michael Jackson estate owed him commissions um, because he was saying that, you know, he he claimed that he arranged MTV to play on, uh, to play Billie Jean, that he convinced Michael to get Quincy Jones as the producer, basically things like that. And uh, his, his company, Demand Entertainment, sued John Branca and John McClain in Superior Court saying that since those songs were produced while he was manager and they're now being transformed into new entertainment like the Cirque Show and the Michael Jackson Experience video games, that he should be getting a commission. And he also said that the MJ estate wouldn't let him look at the books to see just how much he should be getting. Hmm. So, 
So that was in 2011. Mm-hmm. The latest news is that Los Angeles Superior Court Judge uh, Mitchell L. Beckloff said that he is strongly leaning towards throwing the claim out completely because apparently demand never filed a creditor's claim against the estate. So if he filed his original claim in 2011, wasn't that after the statute of limitations expired to file a claim against the estate? Uh, I mean, I don't know much about the statute of limitations, but I believe this was in October of 2011. Yeah, I thought it was, so it was pretty late in 2011. I thought it was one year. I thought that's, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that that, because I remember when Arnie Klein put that stupid thing in about that stupid green jacket. And it was like, oh, yeah. and I was like right at the very end and everybody was just like, oh, made it by the skin of your teeth, buddy. So yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, I, yeah, I guess pretty much he's just one of many people at this point. I mean, if he, he's just going to have to be able to prove everything. And I just don't know how you do that at this point. Well, I think at this point it's not even going to go anywhere. Right. Because apparently he made some mistake that is putting this big claim that has been trying to go through for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting completely thrown out of the water as it looks right. like. All right. Well, okay. On to the next one. On to the next one, and we have another legal case to deal with. Of course, this is the big one: the civil death suit. So, confirmation, or I guess confirmation in quotation in air quotes, came out this week that Prince is going to testify if this case goes to court and that he will be speaking about conversations that he had with his father about AEG and also the events on the day of his father's death. But apparently Paris and Blanket will are not set to testify about either um, of those topics. So uh, also this week, uh, the... Court dismissed all of the claims against AEG, the parent company, and so now Catherine's suit will only be against AEG Live. So um, I guess that may not have it's it's different in terms of who it's holding it, this this um, Michael's death response, who's being held responsible for Michael's death, but it doesn't really impact the case at all i don't think I, th- I think it actually does because won't that make the likelihood of them getting a huge settlement much less if they're only going off of the smaller subsidiary company but i think the smaller subsidiary company in itself is it's massive immensely yeah okay it, like that's the company that owns the like a number of sports teams a number of complexes AEG, oh, yeah, every, AEG, live. AEG live is every that time right I, yeah I okay so. and every time i see like a major concert tour or anything like that it's almost always hosted by AEG live okay yeah well i um i mean i haven't seen this confirmed anywhere i only saw it in one source that we don't typically like to use as a primary source so i'll just um say that this is speculation, but apparently there, I saw a figure this morning that the children and Catherine were asking for $40 billion. What? Yeah. yeah. That is insane. Yeah. It was going to be, um, I think it was, t- wasn't it like 10 billion for Michael's projected future earnings? And I forgot exactly how the number was constructed, but I didn't see it coming from an actual court document yet, so I wanted to wait 
But if that is true, um, is AEG Live worth forty billion dollars? I mean, is that, anything. I know. Like, I mean, I'm like, that's like, is that's the more, U.S. government? Yeah, worth $40 that's like dollars? that's like, like more what? than the than the economy of many countries. <laughs> The gross, the gross national yeah. product. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. I mean, even even if AEG was worth way more than that, mm-hmm. that's, that's just crazy that one person is for that much money. It seems like it seems like that would make the case less likely. Yeah, I feel like they're treading dangerous territory asking for that much because. Can't a case kind of get dismissed just because of being flagrantly well, overzealous? But don't you remember when they they also asked for a really exorbitant number from Murray? Remember during the sentencing phase, um, they wanted restitution, and I remember that they were saying like, no matter what amount they asked for, it was going to be purely symbolic because everybody knows Murray is bankrupt, and so yeah, it, it won't affect. It won't affect. Like it won't make it seem ridiculous i think people do this all the yeah. time and even if aeg live isn't worth nearly 40 billion which i don't know how much they're worth that's like i i don't think the the catherine or the kids think that they're gonna get 40 billion yeah. ever yeah but they're just saying like this is how it's like a a statement more or less yeah this but that's still a huge statement <laughs> you could sue me for 40 billion yeah and it'd just be like well Good luck. <laughs> I'd be like, I can cook dinner for you three nights a week. Yeah. And that's about all I can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I really do think that they're trying to set legal precedent with this case. And I think they're going to go as far and as extreme with everything about it as they can. So it'll be really interesting to see how this all shapes up in the long run. Yeah, and it's going to be kind of brutal for fans to witness i know that the 2011 case was pretty Mm -hmm. rough because we saw like of course the picture of michael after he died and heard a lot of like negative stuff about him but apparently his medical records are going to be unsealed so that's a lot of personal information Mm. that is probably going to become public and if people have followed michael jackson's life they know that his medical history is pretty complicated so yeah that might get ugly for a while and you know the thing is i'm very torn because on the one hand i've said this many times on the forum and i'll continue to say this i feel like if the family has any reasonable expectation that aeg actually did in fact leads significantly towards michael's demise then absolutely they should be held responsible but if this is something where they don't feel that they actually, that it's more just about raising awareness. I I don't know. I mean, I have to say, if it was me, having my medical history open for the world to see is, I mean, it's just not something, it's not even like I have anything crazy in my medical history, but like Ivy just said, it's just so personal. Like, Yeah, it's, it's a mm-hmm. huge trade-off if this is just a symbolic Yes, thing. So, right. so I have to believe that they really have evidence, like, really strong legal evidence that we don't know about that makes them feel like this is all worth it for what it's going to do to Michael's name and legacy by going through this process. Cause I, I mean, that is, that's a huge, huge trade-off, huge trade-off. Especially for Michael who sacrificed so much of his personal life in order to maintain like a public mm-hmm. image for so long. And like he went out of his way to not, Make sh- to not let his personal relationships become public and 
I feel like, I don't know, I hate when people say that Michael wouldn't want this, but he wouldn't I feel want like this at all. <laughs> this is not a trade-off that he would make. Yeah. Letting his personal health records become I public. mean, right. with Murray, it was so obvious. He did kill him. So he needed to go to jail or prison or whatever. I mean, that, I don't, there's no level of justification that you can ever give me that says, well, Michael wanted the propofol. The reality is he never could have gotten it or he would not have been able to have it administered and have a catheter and all the things associated with it if there was not a licensed MD that was complicit in the situation. So for that that legal and professional responsibility that Murray completely deceived with his medical license, he absolutely deserved to be held accountable. I, I do think that... The emails coming out from AEG definitely indicate that they, you know, there were some people there that did not care about Michael, looked at him as a cash cow. I'm sure that happens for many artists and many companies. But being able to prove that they had, like, you know, nefarious intentions and that somehow they got Murray to sort of be this puppet to harm Michael, I I just think it's going to be very, very difficult to prove that. Yeah, I'm... I'm really curious to see what evidence they do have because mm-hmm. it seems like they're so sure, but well, I'm totally dreading this yeah, case. It's not, yeah. it's going to be difficult. Well, we will keep you all up to date with the latest that's coming with the civil suit, but yeah, the projected start date is April 1st. So we've got about two weeks unless they come to a settlement before that. We're going to be starting yet another trial um, that's surrounding Michael's death. So we will keep you posted on that. Yeah. Well, for the last little bit of news, it's a uh, speaking of AUG. AEG is no longer for sale. It's been for sale for quite a while. But um, Anschutz Entertainment Group, whose owner, Philip Anschutz, hopefully I'm pronouncing that name right, um, is pulling AEG off the market. He said that he'd made clear that he wouldn't sell the company unless the right buyer came forward. Um, But he's going to resume with a more active role in the company. But the president and CEO, um, Tim Lewecki, is leaving and apparently he's leaving with mutual consent, although nobody seems to be saying why. Well, thank you for bringing us the news this week. And like we said, we will keep you all up to date on all of the latest stories. If you'd like additional news information, head over to our forum, PositivelyMichael.com. We've got lots of threads going all the time to get the latest Michael Jackson news out to the fans. So from there, we are going to go to what is quickly becoming one of the most popular segments on this show, Seven Inches In. And for that, we will prominently bring to the forefront here uh, Sparkle Socks to give you some feedback about your previously selected artist, Alex Isley, and also to hear who you've selected for our next artist. So Sparkle Socks, how are you today? I am doing well. How are you? I'm great. Uh, I think that you did much better with this selection, according to our Twitter followers and our members. So apparently, apparently, <laughs> Sun Ra was a little bit much for some of the people. Uh, jazz was a little bit difficult, but Alex Isley was a huge, huge hit. And I've pulled a couple of comments from some of the people who listen to her music to let you know what they said. So our first comment is from JVF Smile, and she says, This week's songs by Alex Isley are much more in line with my musical taste and choice. I think she has such an amazing, gorgeous voice. She loved Into Orbit. 
She thinks that she has a lovely, soulful sound and layers her vocals in a way that reminds her of something that Michael would have done. And she also says the song lyrics are really beautiful and they're sung with lots of emotion. Um, She also enjoyed Alex Isley's version of I Can't Help It, which we all know is a beautiful song that Michael uh, sang on Off the Wall, which we covered in Paz Mike's pages last week through Michael and the uh, Man in the Music. So it was very appropriate time to hear that cover. And she enjoyed it and thought that the scatting that Alex Isley does in that version is very interesting. I actually felt the same way. I thought that that was the thing that made it the most distinct from um, Michael's version was that she sort of added the scatting and changed the phrasing around a little bit to make it her own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll turn it over to Ivy and Lurk to give their responses to Into Orbit and to her uh, cover of I Can't Help It. I loved both. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the things that I noticed with it, or that I felt with it, is you know how there's songs that you... You hear them, and you can, you can sort of hear that, like, somebody has written them, and then there are songs that just kind of sound like they exist and that they've always been around. Mm-hmm. That's what Into Orbit sounded like to me. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying, but I didn't think of it like that. But, that, but wow, that's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, I mean, that's how I thought of Into Orbit. Obviously, I Can't Help It was written by somebody, and it's kind of hard to uh, distinct that. But I did love the scatting. Um I think I think from members and from listeners, Off the Wall was a little bit more mixed in review, but I think in general people still really liked it. You mean I can't help it? Yeah, sorry. sorry I was I like, who doesn't like Off the Wall? Can I punch <laughs> them in the face? <laughs> no, sorry. I was saying the album, not the song. Okay. Or yes, yes, yes. Um, Did anyone from Twitter, because I, I, I didn't um, see the Twitter streams, but I, I, no one on the forum really commented on that the uh, downloading the album or either one of the albums i was wondering if anyone on twitter like listened to any of her other stuff i don't it didn't seem i think people mainly responded to i can't help it and into orbit since those were the two that you identified to listen to um but um i've got another comment from um one of our members red corvette and i thought it was pretty funny she says I don't even smoke, but I feel as though I need to light one up after listening to Into Orbit. (laughs) She says it has her feeling very mellow and languid by the end, and she really liked the feel of the song, and she likes the vocal layers and the finger snaps, and she thought it was very Michael-esque also. But I thought that was pretty funny that she she was feeling pretty groovy after listening to that. I don't know. Red Corvette, we got to cut her off, man. She can only listen to Into Orbit once a week. We don't, we don't need her to, to get too wild over there in Australia. Um, Ivy, what did you think? Yeah, that was a gorgeous mm-hmm. song. Incredibly gorgeous. Into mm-hmm. Orbit. Definitely, like, you. I think you described it as something you want to listen to, like, saddle up next to your crush yes. and listen to. And definitely, it was so steamy and smoky and, like, relaxing and gorgeous and everything. And I can't help it. I really loved her rendition, but I honestly think I really love every rendition of this mm-hmm. song. Like, I really love Beyonce, her version. Um, I just think that was more a testament to the song than to Alex Isley, but I love what she brought to it as well, and I definitely like the original work from Alex Isley. Yeah, I think that that's, can I just say really quickly that that's such a testament to Stevie Wonder's brilliance, how transferable that Mm -hmm. song is. I mean, that is an amazing song. It, 
truly, if, if any of you guys listening have not listened to Off the Wall in a while, um, and even if you only have time to listen to one song, just go listen to I Can't Help It. It is such an amazing song. I just have to throw I that in. I won't describe Perfect Volume, because that is the song that Perfect <laughs> Volume was made for. Mm-hmm. All right, what, what's Perfect Volume? I... I wrote a treatise on the forum sometime two, three years ago mm-hmm. on listening to op- listening to I Can't Help It at Perfect Volume in the bathtub. And it's like, <laughs> I it used to be that. a particular <laughs> number on my stereo, but it was like where you can barely hear it, where you can only hear it perfectly if you're sitting absolutely still and quiet. It's just that loud. I don't know why that's perfect volume because when I listen to I Can't Help It, I, I like it to completely flood my entire existence. Well, you have to be silent so that it can flood your entire existence. It forces Ooh. you to be quiet oh. in the acoustics of a bathroom while you're in the tub. Why, is it, why do you have to be in the tub? Is it like the, is it the echolocation off of the surface of the water? Yes, yes, that's what makes it work. <laughs> you can feel the sound waves traveling. Is that what's happening? That's why Perfect Volume is an unregistered trademark. As envisioned, you have in so many bathroom. unregistered trademarks that we'll just add this one to the list. Yep. Um, I think Ivy was going to make one more comment before I threw in my plug about Stevie Wonder. Ivy, did, was there anything else you wanted to say about um, either song? No, I was just going to be waxing more um, emotionally about I Can't Help It just being one of the best songs in existence. Yeah. So I think now the new assignment for us and all listeners is to listen to I Can't Help It at Perfect, at perfect Volume in the bathroom. But how will Do they it. know if it's Perfect Volume if Sparkle Socks is not oh. in their bathroom oh. to tell them that it is? You'll know. You will know. <laughs> how will you know? How will I know? How will And I, I don't want Sparkle Socks to be in my bathroom <laughs> while I'm in the bathtub. So how are we going to achieve this? You sure? We'll have to video record it. <laughs> Skype record it. <laughs> yes, video Skype it. Oh, I will not be a part of that video Skype. And this show is quickly quickly falling apart. All right. Well, I think Alex Isley received warm love, and she got Twitter love, too. I think everybody universally loved her. So that was an excellent choice. And thank you for bringing Alex Isley's music to the MJ fam and, um, you know, giving her some exposure because she's great. So I'm now looking forward to hearing who is your next choice. My next choice is not a new artist. I've been on a little bit of a kick this week. I had trouble deciding who I wanted to pick, but um, I've been on a live performance kick. And since Alex Isley was someone who I, in a lot of ways, was very much influenced by Michael as far as the songwriting and the producing and the just the vocal quality and everything, I decided this week to try to choose someone who was an influence of Michael's. And I don't think there is a greater influence, even he himself said, um, that James Brown yes. is probably his his biggest influence and also in honor of one of my cousins who passed away recently, who was one of the famous flames in James Brown. He was the last living famous flame. I don't know if most people knew about the um, controversy with the um, rock and roll hall of fame 
in that a lot of bands that were inducted were inducted with a lot of people who were or several people who were inducted were were inducted without their bands so when james brown was initial was originally inducted he should have been inducted as james brown and the famous flames because they weren't a band they were a group it was james brown and the famous flames before he kind of broke off and went solo so they were not well most of them were posthumously because most of them passed away but um last spring they were retroactively inducted into the hall of fame along with james to add it on to james brown's original induction so that was that was neat i thought as well but Everyone knows James Brown. Everyone's seen him. Everyone's heard him. But I think that some people may not have ever gotten into appreciating him as a physical, his physicality and his physical being as a performer. So as a little bit of a departure, instead of giving you guys two singles this week, I'm giving you two performances that I think best um best illustrate James Brown's energy as a performer and what it was that Michael was taking from him when he was being woken up in the middle like this is what he was seeing when Catherine was waking them all uh, all up in the middle of the night to watch tv because James Brown was on so this is what little five six-year-old Mike was looking at and saying this is what I'm going to be. So the first performance is actually one of my favorite songs. Um, the uh, Bobby Hebb song, Sunny. Yes. Do you know what song I'm talking about? Okay. It's James Brown's rendition of that song. So this performance is from, I think, I'm not sure what year it's from, but it's from a performance in Paris. And you guys should be seeing the link to that. And there's just something about this performance that I absolutely adore. He's not even, he's not real. A lot of James Brown performances you watch, he's, he's, he's really into it the whole time. But this is so understated. It's just the band behind him, him and a microphone. He's wearing a suit. He doesn't, he dances, but not that much. But there's just so much raw energy into what was previously this really happy, sunshiny, doo-woppy kind of tune, and he just takes it into a completely different direction. So that's my first selection, is um, this performance of Sunny uh, at the Olympia in Paris from, I want to say it may be 63, but I may be wrong on that year. Um, and my next selection is from one of my favorite concert performances that I wish I could have gone to. It's the, uh, I don't know if anyone's heard of um, Zaire 74, the Ali versus Foreman fight. Yes. And Zaire and the concert that went along with it. Yes. If you ever have the opportunity, I think Soul Power, Soul Power is a documentary about that concert. I think Mm -hmm. it's still streaming on Netflix. And if you have the time to sit down and watch it, please watch it. It is an awesome documentary it's an awesome concert and i actually my holy grail of music is to get a soundboard from that concert 
Like, I want that in full in my life. I think I know someone who knows someone who has one. So I've been on the hunt for it since last year. (laughs) Well, if you get it, I will gladly, gladly take a copy of that. Yes. (laughs) I will share. But um, my, the second performance, my B-side, but neither one of these is really a B-side, is um, James Brown's uh, set during that concert. And it is awesome from the denim from the the denim i don't know if that's a one it's like a denim leisure suit it is it's a it's a it is a it's like like a full length onesie with no chest yes yes it's uh, from the chicks in hot pants and applejack hats and boots he was getting it he was getting it going on and when you think about what's happening that they are in zaire and it is like July. Yes. I think it was like summer. That was the rumble in the jungle, <laughs> it was, right? Yeah, it yep. was hotter. It was hotter than July. Yes. And he is up here with these lights in this full denim suit, getting it. Um, I <laughs> I love that performance. It's just really really fun, and the the just the energy, and I think it really exemplifies what what Michael wanted to be and mm-hmm. what he achieved and what was going on in his head when he was putting his vision of himself as a performer together. I, I am so excited that you selected James Brown. I um, had a really special moment after Michael passed away. My parents were up visiting me maybe a, a week or two after Michael passed away. And my dad was a drummer and so he's very, very into music. And they're both my parents are older than Michael was. And so they were telling me for, for my feelings about Michael is the way that they felt about James Brown. Mm. And my mom told me the most, you have to understand. My mom is like this little, like prim and proper lady. Like she told me the funniest story about seeing James Brown in concert and how she basically completely lost her mind. <laughs> And it was like, just, just doing, just doing the most at that concert. And they had me to watch a performance of James Brown doing night train. And if anyone has never seen that, we will also put that link. He has a dance breakdown at the end of that song. That's literally like almost making people in the audience pass out. Like it is so intense. He is so tiny and so powerful and explosive. And I've just, I've never seen anyone just explode off the stage like that. And I totally understand why Michael was completely obsessed with him. Like, like many people of our generation have never actually sat down and watched James Brown perform when he was in his prime, but he was a vision, like, like took your breath away dancer. So I am so excited and thrilled that you are bringing this for seven inches in. Cause I am looking forward to watching these performances and many more. So while telling funny stories about our moms and seeing James Brown live, so my mom for my whole life has kind of like rubbed it in like, oh yeah, I saw James Brown when I was a kid. And the funny thing is that she always said, I don't really remember it though, because I was so young. But yeah, my mom took me to see James Brown. He played, and I'm not going to say where I live, but let's just say it's not the kind of place that you would expect James Brown to be playing at. And so I always thought that was the coolest thing. Last year, I was talking to my grandma, and she was like, we never went to see James Brown. I wish we went to see James Brown. And my mom was just like, then who did we sit with? Then who did we go see? And she was like, it was some local funk band. 
So your mom has basically been going around with stars in her eyes claiming to have seen the late, great James Brown and it never happened. It never happened. I wish that I had a false hilarious. memory. Can I get a false memory that I saw Michael live? Yeah. I know, right? Oh, poor mom. Y'all should have let her have that moment. She was like, whatever. I don't remember it, but. Yeah. Well, my mom, all I know (laughs) is my mom said he put on a concert that she will never forget. And I believe it after watching those clips. Yeah. I mean, she said it was like, you know, yeah, just you will, like, she'll never forget seeing him live. And the way that people were just screaming and screaming and screaming. And, and, you know, my parents grew up during segregation. So she was saying too, like, you know, the, the, the crowd was not one race and this is during segregation. He was that amazing that he brought together everyone in the South to come and see him. And I also know that James Brown was very big in black history of, you know, being very adamant about, about, you know, really being proud of, um, you know, the, creating pride in the black community, but also really taking firm stances about where he would and would not play in terms of segregation. So he was a huge civil rights uh, person as well. So all around, he's a great person uh, musically for Michael to look up to. And I'm really excited that everyone's going to be able to see these great performances. Yay. And yeah, he was actually at, after, um, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. He was actually, James Brown was asked by, I don't know if it was like on a national level or a local government mm-hmm. to to do a concert to like calm people down wow. and to stop riots from breaking out. Wow. That's yeah. how powerful he was. That's who he was. What I honestly, who I wanted to give you guys this week in the form of live performance. Well, should you hold it and do it another week or do you well, want I don't think I can, but this may be an assignment for to open up for later because okay. it may turn into one for later. Okay. Because James Brown's idol, James Brown's what my, what James was to Michael, that person for James Brown was little Richard. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But because oh. it's previous, like it's really hard to find good, good video, like good live performances of Little Richard. Mm-hmm. So I challenge. I'm. I might. I'm sending this up to the internet to. Uh, if anybody knows, that can be a future episode. All right. So to all our listeners. Please take a look at the performance clips of James Brown and give us your feedback. I think we'll all really love this assignment this week. And also, as an added bonus, if you know of any clips of Little Richard, please pass those along as well, because that would really be phenomenal to be able to watch those as part of this week's Seven Inches In. So, thank you, Sparkle Socks. What a great selection. I don't think you're going to get any complaints from anyone this week. No, nobody is going to complain. And if someone does complain, we're going to be like, what will Michael be saying right now? Because he was Michael's idol. And so how? If someone does complain, we're just going to be like, no, overruled. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, man. James Brown is, uh, he, he, he is awesome. He's awesome. And think about the number of artists who have covered his music. Mm-hmm. So many covers, none touching the greatness. So yeah, looking forward to it. Okay, cool. Well, we are going to move on to the next segment of the podcast, which is Pause Mike's Pages. We are covering Man in the Music by Joe Vogel, and we had a very exciting reading assignment this last week, which was to cover the chapter on Thriller. 
and we got great feedback from other people reading the book, and I've got tons to cover, so I want to get to it so that we can keep the show moving along. First of all, I want to start out our discussion by reading a quote that Michael made when he was interviewed about Thriller. He said, I love to create magic, to put together something that's so unusual, so unexpected that it blows people's heads off. Something ahead of the times, five steps ahead of what people are thinking. So people will see it and they'll say, whoa, I really wasn't expecting that. Is that a great description to start out talking about thriller or what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. You know, we y- you always read in Michael's biographies about how crushed and devastated he was about off the wall, not having the commercial success that he thought it deserved and not having the critical acclaim he thought it deserved with the Grammys. Well, I think it's safe to say um, having to this date sold over 100 million copies that Thriller definitely accomplished that commercial success that Michael was seeking. It was genre-crossing. It brought black music to mainstream radio. Um, I think something that was fascinating that I read during this week was that Thriller um, came out during a recession. And if you all might recall, you know, this, this was during Reagan's years when there was a recession going on and people weren't spending money. And literally... Epic, the company Epic, credits Thriller as single-handedly reviving and giving them their best years ever in history and also completely reviving wow. the music industry. And that, is, yeah. and that is to date, by the way, best financial years in history from this one yeah. album. I thought it was really amazing um, reading that part, how they were saying that cassettes were around at the time. And everybody was concerned that nobody was going to buy anything anymore because everybody could just record their music for free off the radio. I thought that was a really great parallel. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. know. I know. But, and it's true. There are so many reasons why you can imagine that Thriller would not have been the most commercially successful album. Um, something that I thought was really funny that I know our uh, member PYT is going to crack up about is that the first single off of Thriller was The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney. And Oh, I loved the part, the section on The Girl Is Mine. And, I loved yeah, it. Yeah, because... You know, there were so many things about this album that were so record-breaking and groundbreaking. You know, so much of it was that, you know, like I said, it it brought black music back to mainstream radio. Um, You know, the president of CBS at the time had to threaten MTV that it was going to pull all artists and music off of its channel if it didn't start featuring Michael Jackson. MTV's response was, we only play rock music. And the response of the president of CBS was, well then forget having any of our artists on your channel ever again. I mean, this this album and these songs were so historic in so many ways that I think it is really funny that even in the midst of all of this groundbreaking, you know, race relations, etc., that was going on, Michael still felt that they needed to release The Girl Is Mine because, number one, Paul McCartney was considered by many to be the best vocalist that was around at that time, one of the largest stars, obviously a member of the Beatles. And number two, because Michael very shrewdly knew and understood that he still needed that co-signing of Paul McCartney's name to get him over into white radio. 
And so even though many people think The Girl Is Mine is the weakest track on the album, it was really important to get it out first. What do you guys think about that? Well, first of all, and I remember PYT knows this, I love The Girl Is Mine. I It's kind of the same way that I love Girlfriend. It's like a sweet, soft, smooth little jam that just, like puts you in a good mood and like lets you sway back and forth and gives you a minute to like pump yourself up for the rest of Thriller. I think it's a beautiful song. I love the way their voices sound together. And yeah, I think it's extremely powerful that Michael Jackson, when he was making a statement about his music being relevant for all kinds of people, took not only any white artist, but the most successful old man rocker. Like, of course he was younger then, but this is like probably like he's the music's the, the old white guy music snobs fave and takes him and says, yeah, not only is Paul McCartney a fan, but his style of music can integrate perfectly with mine. And look how, much better I sat on the track well, than he does. My opinion, <laughs> of course. My opinion Well, right you know, there. the, thing, the well, thing is, too, really quickly before, Larth, you say what your comment is, is that he, they, they, Joe Vogel points out, how could any white radio station get a single that has Paul McCartney on it and make the decision to not play it because he's duetting with a black artist? Like, that's, you can't ignore Paul McCartney. So it was right. very, very shrewd of Michael to do this. I, I just thought that for him to be that young and have that level of insight was pretty extraordinary. Well, one of the things that I had never really considered, I guess just because I come from a completely different environment being, I don't know, being so much younger than the people who would have been, I don't know, sort of thinking in this way back when Thriller came out. But The Girl Is Mine, to me, was always such a safe little ditty, you know? But Joe Vogel points out in the book... This was a black man and a white man fighting over the same girl. And it was a huge single on radio at the time, whenever the radio didn't even want to play this kind of music. So not only was it a big deal that they were singing on the same song, they were fighting over the same girl. You keep dreaming. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever Whenever that part comes on, I always laugh. Well, yeah, I mean, so obviously for so many reasons, this album... It's on the map. I have a lot to get through, so I'm going to keep moving along quickly. Um, a couple of, of statistics about Thriller that I thought were worth bringing up. It spent 80 weeks <laughs> in the top 10 and, uh, in 1982. And so that's over a year yeah, and a half. Be- then, between, right? It started in 82, ending in 84. Um, 80 weeks in the top Holy 10. Moly. Out of those weeks, 37 of those weeks, number one. Never been repeated, wow. ever. Um, Joe Vogel points out, we all know Michael won eight Grammys for Thriller. But here's the deal. As he points out, that was much more impressive than what any artist has done since then because there were far fewer categories at the Grammys. So right. it was sort of like universally proclaimed that this was the album. It wasn't partitioned as like, oh, well, you are the best of this small subset. No, it was the best. Um, 10 American Music Awards, seven of nine of the singles, uh, you know, top 10 singles. Um, in 1984, it 
the Guinness Book of Okay, so after the album had only been out for two years, it got put in the Guinness Book of World Records as the best-selling album of all time. Think about how many more albums it has sold since 1984. (laughs) So basically, it had already broken records to that point in two years out of history. Any album that had been around for history, Elvis, Beatles, whomever, Thriller outsold all of those in only two years. And now will never be surpassed since it has sold over 100 million albums. Um, It was number one in nearly every country in the world including segregated countries like South Africa. And one something that Joe Vogel pointed out that I thought was really cool was that Thriller is an album that is synonymous with so many things. So, you know, we have the short films that started coming out at this time that are truly the stuff of legend. Obviously, Beat It, Billie Jean, and Thriller are, you know, some of the most identifiable and most culturally relevant short films that were ever made, music videos, as many call them. But he pointed out that Michael's trademark style is also synonymous with Thriller. Because when you think about the sparkly socks, shout out sparkle socks, glittery socks, the sparkle socks there. When you think about the glittery glove, when you think about the glittery jacket and the jerry curl and the 80s and that red leather zipper jacket, that's all synonymous with Thriller. He's totally right. Like there's, it's not. That does not go with bad or dangerous or off the wall. All of those iconic, the the aviator sunglasses, uh, the moonwalk, all of the pop culture moments that are deeply cemented in who we are as a nation come from Thriller. And he also pointed out that for anyone who wants to try to argue Michael's star power compared to like the Beatles, for instance, he said, you know, Beatlemania was, was, uh, you know, across four very wonderful artists. Michael eclipsed that as one person. So if anyone sort of wants to argue of the cultural relevancy of Michael versus the Beatles, you have to acknowledge that their success stemmed from the four of them having four separate fan bases that all came together into one supergroup, or Michael was just a single artist. And there So I don't know if I agree with this to be honest, I don't know if I agree mm-hmm. with that mm-hmm. logic. I think it's pretty hard. It's not like you're a fan of just Ringo. And then, like, Ringo brings his legion of fans well, that's, into the group. to be I fair, that's probably, I mean, he, that's not exactly the way that he wrote it. So that's definitely my, my, you know, recounting of that moment. I think, I think what he was trying to say was there was the opportunity for these four men to each bring fans to the table. Where for Michael, there was, there was never that opportunity to have additional input, except for what he put out to the world. But they were never separate artists before they were a group. Like they were always, they were first a group. If anything, like, and obviously I'm a Michael Jackson fan more than I'm a Beatles fan, but if anything, Michael had the lead off there because he was in another group, the Jackson five and then the Jacksons before he was a solo artist. But the Beatles were only ever the Beatles. The four. I, but I think together. that Vogel's point is, for instance, I really like John Lennon. I'm not a huge Paul McCartney fan. I can still love the Beatles because I like John Lennon, but I don't, it has nothing to do with me disliking Paul McCartney. Like, I think that's more of what his point was, was that you had four shots at being a super fan of one of those guys or as the whole group. But for Michael, you either loved him or you didn't. There was no other person or people to sort of dilute that across. I think that's what he was saying. 
Yeah, okay. so I think it's a slightly different point, and I think that the the point that came up before is probably more my interpretation than Joe's. But I do agree with you. I mean, I I think that um, certainly Michael already had following uh, from his childhood stardom, but I do think that at this point he had very much completely re re you know just reclassified himself as a solo artist in a way that was very unique and distinct from what was happening with the Jacksons. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, and I also dare say, I'm not, you know, the, like he pointed out the victory tour was still going on in the midst of all this. And there were other things that were happening. So, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep moving along though. Just, I'm um, just checking the time here. So a couple of interesting things. Vogel points out that Michael made the statement that he didn't want to be overtly about breaking barriers with race during this time, even though that's what so many people discuss with Thriller. So his strategy was, I just want to make music that is so good and crosses so many different genres that it can't be denied. And apparently in 83, I didn't know this, David Bowie actually called MTV out publicly for their, you know, sort of just, you know, reticence about playing black videos. And I don't know if it was specifically Michael or just black artists in general, but he really did make music that other musicians obviously felt was so good that it should not be getting suppressed by, you know, MTV's, you know, we only play rock videos, which I still can't even imagine what that would be if that's still the way it was now. A um, couple other exciting things about Thriller. First, um, so the short film for Thriller actually had its premiere in a movie theater. Did you guys know this? It, it no. was at the um, the AVCO Theater. It was had a two-week run, and uh, one of the critics said, you know, I have been to the Oscars and the Golden Globes and the Emmys, and I never saw fanfare to the gr- degree that I saw it at Thriller's premiere. They said, you had everyone from Eddie Murphy to Prince to Warren Beatty to Diana Ross present. And apparently a really funny story is after Thriller was shown publicly for the first time, it was at the first night's premiere and Eddie Murphy was there and he showed up and was like, basically said something. I need to find the actual quote, but he pretty much yelled out something like, play the blankety blank short film again, man. I want to see it again. Because everybody wanted to see it. He like yelled out and like cursed at the person who was controlling the film to make them play it again. So it actually played twice that night because Eddie Murphy demanded that it get played again. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that part. But can I just say that I think my favorite part of this entire chapter on Thriller is the part where he's discussing the cover. Yes. And there is that amazing, hilarious G- GQ quote, which this is for you, Ivy Jivey. GQ magazine said he looked like, quote, an iconic sun god relaxing after quitting time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who wrote that article? I want to shake your hand. (laughs) But it goes on to say that uh, just like the the songs. (laughs) (laughs) But Joe Vogel went on to say that just like Thriller's songs um, set a new standard for music. The cover, and this is a quote from Joe Vogel, the cover symbolized a new cross-racial, cross-gender ideal of beauty. Jackson's features were soft and feminine, but neither stereotypically Caucasian nor African. 
he represented a new androgyny that appealed not only to black and white, but also to Asian, Latino, Middle Eastern, and Indian. Mm -hmm. Mm. Very true. Well, I love that quote. I'm gonna. I need to take that and put it somewhere because I yeah. love that. And it's very true. <laughs> it's, it's very yeah. accurate. Um, a couple other points about Thriller that I thought were interesting before I quickly go through some of the things that Joe wrote about the music. Um, pointed out something that I hadn't realized, but is true, which is that many of the lighter fare songs that are on Thriller were not written by Michael. That more angst-driven. Darker songs are the ones that Michael wrote. And I think that's a really interesting point because he was saying, you know, it sort of shows that even at that early stage of his career, like you pointed out, Beat It was written during the Cold War and he wanted to write a song about pacifism and everybody squashing beef and getting along. Like what other artists in the early 20s is thinking that they want to write a song about peace and squashing beef when most want to write about relationships with girls and, you know, what they can buy or something like that. He was saying it, it just showed a level of maturity and a grappling for authenticity that Michael exhibited that lots of other artists don't show. Something else is he was talking about, if you look at the lyrics of some of the other songs that Michael wrote, it's always sort of about him feeling trapped or, um, you know, being misunderstood or being in a space that is confusing. And I just thought that that was an interesting point because I do think that at that stage of Michael's life, you know, he was sort of going out on his own and sort of being drugged back and forth between like performing with his family and performing on his own and creating his own solo identity. And so, and also dealing sort of with his perception with the way the world perceived him and how he wanted to live his life and maybe not trusting people. What do you all think about that analysis? I thought that was very astute. Yeah, well, even in his, his like, upbeat party song, like, you think of Wanna Be Starting Something, and if you don't listen to the lyrics, that's, like, the kind of song that you just, like, full-on dance out to it, happy dance mm -hmm. song. But it's about, like, irresponsible parenting. Yeah. And it's very heavy. Mm -hmm. I think that was a like a, a great observation. Yeah, I mean, it, this chapter is chock full of wonderful insight, as I think this entire book is obviously shaping up to be. Um, I mean, as as we've said many times, if you guys have not purchased this book, go buy it. It is wonderful. Um, I am going to now go on to discuss a couple of the songs that are in Thriller and some of the things that I found to be particularly um, insightful. Um, one thing, first off, is a quote that Michael said that I thought was one of the most perfect quotes I've ever heard about a song in my life. According to, I think Quincy Jones said, when Michael heard human nature for the first time, he said, that is music with wings. That mm. is exactly what human nature is. That's it. That is exactly what it is. It it fl it flies. It soars. It's it's lyrical. It's it's like effervescent. It has this such a a flowing and I don't know. It, it's, comparing it to like a bird in flight is such a great way to think about that song. And of course, Michael would be the one to have that level of insight um, to describe a song. Yeah. Of course. And I remember Quincy Jones telling the story of how, when he first heard 
um, human nature. And apparently he was listening to like a, a long tape full of songs that Toto or the members of Toto had written and had basically were proposing for Michael and none of them really impressed him. And it just so happened that human nature was kind of tacked on at the end. And it just blew Quincy's mind. He just couldn't stop thinking about the the why, why part. And he thought it was, like, so incredibly beautiful. And I agree. Once you hear that song, it's just a different kind of song. Like, kudos to the writers and kudos to Quincy for production and Michael for bringing it to life. But that's just a different kind of song. You know, that's really true. Uh, now that I'm really thinking about this, and I think about it every time I hear Human Nature... I've, I don't even know if I've ever heard a song that I would classify as in the same genre as Human Nature. It's yeah, literally it sounds like Human Nature. It's literally the only song like Yeah, it. there are other songs Michael has also where we've talked about this on the forum. Like, I remember when Behind the Mask came out on the Michael album, someone was saying, what genre would you put that song in? And, and then someone else said, well, I raise you one. What is Smooth Criminal? And then we were like, Michael has yeah. several songs where you don't know how to classify them because, and you know, and that's one of the things also that, that Joe Vogel points out about even human nature is as beautiful of a song as it was when they heard the demo, the reality is that Michael's interpretation is what made the song what it is. And he has a way of taking songs and just transforming them to cross genres in such an authentic way that everyone can relate to them. Um, sort of going along with that in terms of relevance of his ability to cross genres, Beat It, which was written by this little black boy from Gary, Indiana, listed as, as in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one of the 500 most influential rock songs of all time. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. I mean, yeah. you're thinking about Little Michael and, and you know, who's clearly not coming from roots of rock. I think that is phenomenal that he was able to accomplish that feat. I also loved the, um, the little section written about how Michael was so scared to play beat it for Quincy because he was so shy about letting other people hear his songs yes. and that it took Quincy forever to wear him down so that he would play him the song. And that when he finally did Quincy just lost his mind. Well, he said it was so different than anything he knew Michael could do. Because right. he was so used to, you know, working with him on Off the Wall and things like that. And to hear him actually writing an off, not just a rock song, but like a really good, authentic rock song was pretty incredible. Um, there's a great quote from Bruce Swedean that I want to read about Thriller. Um, and he says, on the intro, there's a little rhythm track that commences the music. And I purposely limited the bandwidth on it so that as you listen to it, your ear adjusts to that spectral response. Then all of a sudden, the real bass and real kick kick drum come in, and the effect is really startling. How cool is it that he intentionally limited the bandwidth so that your ear would adjust to a to a lesser spectrum of sound, and then he intentionally jacks the sound up to kind of startle you? I just thought that was so cool and such a unique thing to, to sort of get you in that unsettled and slightly startled space that you need to be in to really absorb Thriller as a sort of, you know, unsettling and creepy kind of song. I think that was just a really neat trick that he did vocal, yeah. uh, that he did with the uh, sound of the song there. 
everything I've ever heard about Bruce Wadian is some sort of amazing thing that he has come up with that I would have never thought of that's just totally brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, God, I love him. I wonder, I would love to hear, I mean, being a Michael fan, you hear all these stories about Bruce Wadian because everybody wants to know how these songs were recorded. Mm-hmm. But I would love to hear these kind of stories from other sound mixers and producers. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about Billie Jean. Um, We know about Michael's legendary and epic performance during this time period at the Motown 50 celebration. And something that I did not even think about, but that Joe Vogel pointed out in the book, is that many Americans did not have cable. So despite all of this groundbreaking, you know, work that was going on with MTV showing Michael short films, there were 50 million people watching the Motown performance. And for many of those people, that performance was the first time they had seen Michael perform live as an adult because they don't have cable television. So that further intensified the cultural impact of that moment. It wasn't just his amazing, astonishing dance moves, unveiling the moonwalk. It wasn't just the choreography, everything. It was the fact that people grew up with this child star, had been hearing his latest music, but had not seen him performing as a solo artist until that moment. Can you imagine how earth-shattering and groundbreaking that would be if you were someone who had seen him progress from a little kid to this man? Yeah, wow. I mean, it, I yeah. never, I never thought about that. But he was saying that that for many people was the first time that they saw him perform live. Yeah, you can't. It's it's hard to place that assertion in current time because it's impossible to not have exposure to someone if you're interested in them. You just Google them, and there's like a million things you see them at Starbucks, whatever. But to have like these big statement pieces be the only exposure you have to an artist. I guess that that's basically how Michael built, built his mystique and built his whole image on the fact that he could control up until a certain point where the paparazzi just became too much, but he could control everything that the public saw and knew about him. And so he was able to just be this guy that came out, blew your mind when he was 10 years old, came out, 15 years later, blew your mind again, and then you won't be seeing him again until he releases a video. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah and as incredible. you know, he went on a very long stretch of time where he didn't even do any interviews. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of Billie Jean, which we already know that his performance uh, was extraordinary, a music critic named Mark Fisher says, Billie Jean is not only one of the best singles ever recorded, it is one of the greatest artworks of the 20th century, a multi-leveled sound sculpture whose slinky, synthetic panther sheen still yields up previously unnoticed details and nuances nearly 30 years on. That is true. Oh. So true. And comparing the song to a panther, so aptly appropriate. Because it is so mm-hmm. slinky and sophisticated and mysterious and dark and... Oh, yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Um, I also love that um, there's a really cute story about Michael driving on the freeway in L.A. and instantly getting the melody and lyrics to Billie Jean in his head immediately. Was so engrossed. Yes. His car broke down. 
Another motorist flagged him down and was like, you have smoke coming from under your hood. He hadn't even noticed. He pulls over. He's waiting for, like, a tow truck. And he's trying to frantically get the sounds for Billie Jean so that he can keep them in his head and not lose them before he gets home. That's Michael. <laughs> That's priority. Forget the right broken there. down car. <laughs> and also, I love the fact that when Quincy Jones heard Billie Jean for the first time, he apparently looked at Michael and said, the introduction is so long, I could shave while I'm listening to the, just the introduction alone <laughs> because he wanted him to cut it down. And Michael, of course, was obstinate and said no. Um, I'm just going to give one more quick little factoid, and we're going to end this uh, section about Thriller. Highly, highly recommend you read this. There's so much more in it, but I'm just looking at time and want to keep the show contained here. So um, many of us have heard this anecdote, but just because it's so awesome, I'd like to repeat it one more time. That when Michael was singing The Lady in My Life, that after many, many takes, he was told by Quincy Jones that he needed to beg for it. And that that was one of the most sort of vulnerable moments for Michael musically because he actually sort of had to do this incredibly nuanced and sophisticated vocal performance as it was put in the book where he literally had to plead and beg um, to get the emotion that was necessary to get the longing across in that song. And it definitely comes through. And I mean, so, I mean, lots of people, I think, still count that song as one of Michael's strongest vocal performances, um, just for the emotions that seep through the lyrics when he performs it. So, Thriller is a groundbreaking, earth-shattering, one-of-a-kind album. It was pretty much owned by nearly every household in the United States when it was at its prime. It has out paced any other artist by an order of magnitude in terms of album sales and truly is um just one of you know the most important pieces in american history really worldwide history not only musically but culturally as well do you guys have any um anything you want to add about thriller before we uh, move on well this is the pg podcast so i'm not going to get too far into lady in my life <laughs> but let me just say that is one of my favorite michael jackson songs it's one of my favorite songs in general it is probably one of my top one or two or three sexiest songs of all time. And the beg for it was very effective. I'll just keep it there. (laughs) Well, I'll just say about Thriller. um, Thriller isn't even my favorite Michael Jackson album, but it's still reading, like reading this chapter about Thriller is unreal. It's as much as you're told it's the greatest selling album of all time, as much as you see it everywhere, it it's it doesn't seem like this could happen. You know, like this actually seems like an impossible feat. Mm-hmm. But it happened and that's amazing. Well, I also want to point out one last thing to wrap this section up. That there were several other thriller era songs that were notable. Um that I want to point out. One of them, which is my jam, even though most people haven't heard it, is a song Michael wrote for his sister Rebe called Centipede. <laughs> I love Centipede. I love that song. But that was around this time. The song Hot Street, the song Nightline, Say, Say, Say with Paul McCartney, Somebody's Watching Me, which we all love with Rockwell, State of Shock with um, Mick Jagger, There Must Be More to Life Than, li- than This um, with Freddie Mercury, um, so many, uh, Carousel, 
Cheater. I love I the love demo Cheater. Cheater so much. Yes, and then um, Behind the Mask was actually recorded um, in 82. Carousel was actually supposed to be on the album, and I think that that's the one that um, Human Nature replaced, which I can't even imagine this album without uh, Human Nature. That's just yeah, something yeah. that can't even really speaking, think of. Speaking of Human Nature, I really want to know who has the original Toto version. I want to hear it's it. It's available online. It is. It's on YouTube, oh, yeah. Okay, as soon as this podcast ends, I'm going to listen to that. I want to hear it so yeah, bad. Yeah, do it. So, all okay. in all, this is, as we all know, a phenomenal, phenomenal album, and I really enjoyed not only reading this section, but also listening to the music again, which I've been taking time to do as I read the chapters. So, next up is the chapter on Bad, which is an, another amazing, epic album. Um, cannot wait to have endless discussions about not only this music, but also the short films. So for this next section, we will be reading pages 92 through, I think it's 129. Yes, 92 through 129. Uh, the chapter on bad, even flipping through it, it looks like it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to read it. Uh, again, please, if you haven't already, pick up this book, Man in the Music, The Creative Life and Work of Michael Jackson by Joe Vogel. You won't regret it. Any last thoughts before we move on to wrap up the show? No. All right. Well, we are quickly going to get through our um, highlighted members of the week. First off, we want to get to the Positively Michael member of the week. And drum roll, please. Tinkerbell 58. Woo! Tinkerbell is a very, very popular member of our forum. She contributes on a very regular basis, has endless insight and energy, um, is someone who tries to be very thoughtful of other members, um, really tries to give lots of insight in many different types of threads, whether it's a picture thread or an intense conversation about a serious topic or something about the news or something about the family. She's always there, always lending a friendly ear. Um, we really appreciate all of her contributions to our forum, and we feel like she's an excellent example of somebody that sort of exhibits Michael's love to all that she comes in contact with. So Tinkerbell, we applaud you. We're so glad to have you as a part of our family on the forum, and it just wouldn't be the same without you. So, again, congratulations for being selected as the member of the week. Now, for the post of the week, I'm going a little bit outside the box, guys. There is one member who never ceases to crack me up with her posts on the forum. And it's not because of what she writes. It's because I have now deemed her the gift master. That is Lady in His Life. For you guys who are not on our forum, she can find the most appropriate little video clip that has been transferred over into uh, the GIF format, and she always has the funniest, 
most hilarious responses that she can just insert these little images into each conversation to keep the threads funny and to keep a little bit of levity around the forum. And I feel like she does a great job of posting these images throughout the forum to sort of keep the threads exciting and to keep the conversations memorable. So instead of one post of the week, I think you should just check out the variety of posts that she makes in multiple threads and see how creatively she puts these images into the threads to keep things exciting. So Lady in His Life, thank you for your humor and your insight and all of the threads. And we really appreciate all that you bring to the forum as well. Finally, we would like to highlight our tweeter of the week. And that honor goes to Twitter member BE. And her Twitter is, I'll spell it out for you. It's at B-I-R-G-I-T-E-R-I-K-A. And we have been interacting with BE for Gosh, I'd say since our Posmic Twitter feed started pretty much. And she, oh yeah, for a long, really long time. And she's always got fantastic insight about the, some of the medical things going on, the legal things going on. She also has got fantastic humor. And we just found out that she's going to be in Vegas around the same time that a lot of our members of our forum will be in Vegas to see the MJ1 show for Cirque du Soleil. So we are thrilled that she is always sort of tweeting lots of information and positive things on behalf of the MJ fan and keeping it alive on Twitter. And also that we'll get to meet you soon. So we're very excited about that. I'm so excited. She is one of my favorite people to talk to when I'm tweeting. I'm so excited to meet her. Yes. So we applaud Tinkerbell58, Lady in His Life, and B.E. for all of their contributions, not only to our forum and our podcast, but also to the wider MJ fan community at large. So thanks for that, ladies. And finally, we just want to thank all of you listeners for tuning into our show. Something that I forgot to say last time that I really want to emphasize Thank you all of you who donate and support us financially. It keeps the podcast going. It keeps the forum going. It makes this, I mean, we all love doing this so much. We love keeping Michael's legacy alive. And so all of your donations make that possible. So thank you so much for that. You can check us out on our forum, which is PositivelyMichael.com. You can check out our Twitter, which is at PosMike. You can get all of our podcasts on Blueberry, or you can get them in our podcast subforum or on iTunes. And you can also check us out on Facebook. We'd love to see you at any of those locations. So please. And we also, don't forget, we also have an Instagram account, yes. which is at PauseMike, and a Tumblr page, which is Tumblr, which is pausemike.tumblr.com. Yes. Thank you for reminding me of that, Lars. I am still getting hip to some of the technology that we have. <laughs> so thanks for that reminder. But thank all of you. Be sure to check out James Brown, the man, the myth, the legend for the next installment of Seven Inches In. And also be sure to read the chapter on bad so you can keep up with a Pause Mike's pages of read of Man in the Music. Is there anything else I'm forgetting or can we go on and end it here? I think you got it. All right. Well, thanks to Ivy and Sparkle Socks and Larth for joining me this week. So until next time, lay back in our tenderness and enjoy Michaeling. Take care and we'll see you next time.